0: So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no
1: essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage.
0: Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Greetings and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox. And I am joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing, Nathan?
1: Good. It's great to be back.
0: Yeah, uh, it's been a while since we last did an episode. It's been a while since we've done an interview, but it's also been a while since we've last done a pre-recorded episode of of any type. I think February was when our last episode aired, and uh, we're ready to ready to roll again with a new batch of episodes and bring the podcast back. And I think Nathan and I are both excited to be back doing the podcast thing.
1: Back from the dead.
0: That's right. Wasn't that like a, uh, like a Striper album or, or something?
1: You know, it might've been, I'm not the musical genius. I usually punt to you on that. So, and plus making the back from the dead seems pretty appropriate for a pro-life podcast. So
0: that's true. Cause we are pro-life here. So we're all about uh, bringing life.
1: We're so pro life. We try to keep it lively with our horrible jokes.
0: Yeah, that's right. And ho- hopefully some not so horrible. But needless to say, we're we're happy to be back, and we hope that uh, you're all happy to see us. So today uh, we us. are doing.
1: A, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> they're not seeing us. They're hearing from us. Oh, that's that's true.
0: Well, we are doing uh, an interview today. Uh, the guest we have jo- joining us is Teresa Bukovinac. And I really hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. I'm sure she'll uh, she'll correct me if, if I'm mispronouncing it. But Teresa is an atheist, a feminist, a vegan, Democrat, consistent life activist, founder and executive director of Pro-Life San Francisco. She is also a co-leader of Secular Pro-Life and serves on the board of Rehumanize International. Teresa graduated at the top of her class from Speck's Howard School of Broadcast Arts, and has over 15 years' experience in business and team management with several Fortune 500 companies. She is an active mentor for the Students for Life Wilberforce Fellowship and speaks to pro-life groups throughout California on secular and millennial outreach. Her efforts have been featured in major media outlets such as NBC News Now, The Huffington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, NPR, Slate, Refinery29, Daily Signal, and The Christian Post. She resides in the Tenderloin with her two cats. Teresa, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Clinton. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I've told several people over Facebook that Teresa is probably the hardest working pro-life advocate that I know, especially as regards the whole uh, David DeLayden Center for Medical Progress uh, situation. So I really wanted to have her come on and, and talk about her for uh, expert knowledge regarding that case, as well as uh, a couple other things here. And now we are uh, recording the show live. So if you have a question for Teresa, if you're tuning in today at 2 p.m. Pacific, uh, if you have a question for Teresa, you can call in at 646-668-8257. Uh, once again, the number there is 646-668-8257, if you'd like to call in with a question. So the main topics that we have for discussion today are Teresa's efforts to reform the Democratic Party, trying to make it into a more pro-life party, and then also talking about the hearings with David DeLayden, the Center for Medical Progress, and Sandra Merritt, and you know everyone kind of related to that. But my first question for you, Teresa, then to kind of uh, kick off things here is, how can you reconcile being a vegan and living in the Tenderloin? <laughs>
2: the best interview question i've gotten in a long time um it's a difficult uh life i gotta tell you every day that i reference my own neighborhood it it does Mm -hmm. bring me pain um but overall i think we're spreading you know the animal rights message far and wide here in the tenderloin and uh actually our our supervisor here in san francisco who represents my district um is a vegan and he is um on the side of animal rights so i i think we're going to turn the tenderloin right around (laughs)
1: All right. Teresa, would you yeah. say that you have a beef with a name?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no beef. <laughs> yeah. Just Sorry, about. I had to <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. We'll, we'll, we'll try to keep the puns to a minimum, but but no promises made in that regard. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, not with you guys. <laughs> you guys <laughs> right. are the king of puns online. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, because uh, – Right, because Nathan and I were actually kind of on the same wavelength here. Uh, yeah, adding uh, Scott Klusendorf and, and his associates on Facebook, we've really had to kind of step
1: up our, our pun game. <laughs> Some of them Shut have said up. we need to go to the punitentiary. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> all right. One of the first questions i like to ask all of our guests is, why are you pro-life? Why don't you walk us through your your journey to becoming pro-life, if you would, please?
2: Gosh, well, it's it's been a long one um, so far, and there's a long way to go, but um, I was raised um, in a religious home, a, a Christian home, uh, but we were not pro-life. Um, I don't remember us ever talking about abortion, but I, I know that if it came up, it wasn't something that we really considered a bad thing, uh, certainly not worse than turning up pregnant without being married. Um, so that was kind of the, the message that I got about abortion growing up. And, um, and then I argued for choice in my high school speech class and in my high school debate class. And um, when I was a little bit older, I was um, still, you know, practicing in my faith. I was uh, on the board of evangelicals at a, a prominent um, ELCA uh, Lutheran church in Atlanta at the time and um but i've always had a sensitivity to animals and i wasn't vegan then and i wasn't involved in the animal rights movement at that time but um i had a great deal of sensitivity to um dolphins and elephants and um and at at the time you know animals that had you know higher cognition and i was very concerned about their rights and i was dating someone at the time who was um, agnostic uh, but he was a conservative i was always a liberal Um, And he would challenge me on my beliefs about animal rights. And he would say, how can you care about the dolphins if you don't care about unborn children being killed in the womb? And I just thought that was insane. I was like, what? Unborn children? It's just a clump of cells. And he went out of his way to show me images and videos of prenatal children in utero and abortion procedures. And I was totally shocked. Um, And and I knew then that abortion was something that was not a good thing, that there was something bad about it. But I was very much, like I said, religious at the time, and I realized that there were a lot of terrible things in the world happening, things that were not really super morally problematic necessarily – Um, that were like much more straightforward, I would say, than the abortion issue that I wasn't doing anything about. And I believed, you know, that babies went to heaven uh, when they died and that in the end there would be this divine justice and God would would right all the wrongs. Um, And so I just thought, well, I'll just pray about it and I'm just going to stay pro-choice because, you know, I don't want to force my religion on other people. And, you know, I just... Decided I was going to pray about it and not get involved or worry too much about it and stay politically pro-choice. But I was at that point personally pro-life. But it wasn't until um, years later that I, as I was losing my faith, it it took, it was over the course of several years. But uh, once I I came to the realization that I I no longer believed um, in a meaningful way in a life after death or this sense of divine justice, it made me rethink my own life in a totally different way. I thought this is just so amazing. Like 4 billion years of evolution have occurred and I have this opportunity to come into existence. I popped into an existence without, um, you know, any participation on my own. And yet I have the opportunity to experience life in a way that is so incredibly rare to actually like cognitively be aware of my own existence. And, you know, I, it made me, think about it in a way that was just so much more awe-inspiring and it made me keep coming back to this question about like well what makes it wrong to what why would it be wrong to kill someone and why would it be different for the unborn and ultimately i just came to the conclusion that it isn't different it's the same moral problem um and that we all do have a right to not be unjustly killed regardless of our age so that's my story Uh, oh wait no i guess that's just kind of how I got to be pro-life, but then I got involved with Secular Pro-Life once I found other people like me, and uh, and then I founded Pro-Life San Francisco. And that's so, the end. <laughs> oh,
0: well, not exactly the end, because obviously there's a bunch of stuff that happened uh, after that to lead us up to today. But that's true. what would be your basic case then for animal rights? It's not really, you know, the topic of discussion for today, but if you had to, you know, just kind of give a brief argument for why you believe animals... You know, deserve rights. And we shouldn't kill them for food. What would be your basic argument there?
2: Uh, it's I see it as unnecessarily unnecessary violence uh, against uh, another uh, cognitive creature, uh, one that can experience pain and and have a conscious experience very similar to our own. And I, I believe that that we need justification in order to end the lives of any cognitive creatures. And I think wanting to taste their bodies is not valid justification for that. Wanting them to entertain us or, you know, wanting their skin for our clothes. Those are not valid justifications in my mind.
0: And uh, just out of curiosity, uh, what was it that eventually caused you to give up your faith and become an atheist?
2: Well, I didn't give up my faith and become an atheist. I, over time, I, I desperately tried to continue to believe and I, I went to church and prayed for years. Um you know, wanting to regain my faith, but it just wasn't there. And so over time, I realized um, that there was a better label for what I was going through, and it was atheism. I, I lost my faith, it was gone. Um, okay. But it was a, a series of moral questions, I would say, that I, I didn't find um, satisfactory answers to. And ultimately, to me, it came down to the idea that. If there's a God and God is all knowing and all powerful, God is either a monster or doesn't exist. And over time, I just very much kind of came to the conclusion that it's more likely um, that there is no God.
0: Nathan and I obviously are Christians. And, um, yes. you know, even though you're an atheist and you work with atheists, uh, we're more than happy to call you our friends and to uh, work with you in the cause for life. And so I'm personally uh, very happy that you're, that you're here on our side uh, with all the work that you're doing.
2: Thanks Clinton. I'm happy to be here with my Christian brothers and sisters. We need everybody. And I've learned a tremendous amount um, from other uh, Christians that I've encountered, especially in the pro-life movement. So I think we all have a lot to learn from each other. And the more we can diversify our movement and humanize each other, the e- easier we're going the easier it's going to be for us to humanize unborn to the rest of the
1: world. Teresa, that actually raises a question that I wanted to ask you. I was going to ask you later in the episode, but I think now is a good time. How do people usually respond when you tell them that you're a pro-life atheist? I mean, most people have this stereotype that all pro-lifers are Catholic, are constantly playing, praying the rosary. I mean, me and Clinton have a lot of Catholic colleagues and as we all do in the pro-life movement, how do people usually respond when you tell them that you're an atheist
2: um, well, I, I guess it's a, it depends on who I'm talking to, but like in my general community here in San Francisco, most people are very shocked and curious and they want to know more. Hmm. Like they, that concept is very interesting to them. Um, boomers in general, like millennials are very open to it. They want to know more. Boomers, they don't care. I could say atheist, Democrat, they don't care about any of that. The minute I say pro-life, they're like, get out of my face. So um, I guess it kind of depends on the environment, um, but that's just overall how I would generalize reaction to my position.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, we do have a caller. So if you just hang tight, uh, caller, for a moment, uh, we'll get get to you in just just a couple of minutes. Uh, Before we get there, why don't you tell us a little bit about Pro-Life San Francisco?
2: Sure. So pro San Francisco is a millennial-led grassroots activist organization operating in arguably the most pro-choice culture in America. We seek to educate our community on the topic of abortion, including our elected officials um, and other um, legislators. And we seek to connect pregnant people with the resources by doing sidewalk counseling and, connect and helping support um, the local pregnancy centers. Um, and just be and offering a resources page on our website. And we also, um, the thing that I think we're kind of the most famous for is our nonviolent direct action and our resistance to the abortion industry here um, in the Bay Area in California.
0: All right. We can go ahead and, and take the call and then we'll continue on after here. So, caller, uh, you are live. Uh, please begin by giving your name and then um, whatever uh, you have for Teresa.
1: And Clinton, while well, you know, uh, I'm going to let you finish, but uh, Teresa Bukovina, she is the best clump of sales ever. Dank Pro-Life memes, out. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, yes, Elijah.
0: That was uh, definitely the most uh, interesting call we've ever received here. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, in case you got confused, that was not Kanye West. That was the Dank Pro-Life memes himself, uh, Elijah Thompson. Uh so, so thank you for your call, Elijah. <laughs>
1: so I, uh, right. We've had a celebrity on the we've had another celebrity on the podcast.
0: <laughs> That's true. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: yeah, we've had another uh, pro life celebrity on that uh, we didn't even have to uh, to invite. So <laughs> yeah. we're
2: gonna get memes I can bring now. Perfect. <laughs>
0: So continuing on, I'd like to go ahead and talk about your efforts to reform the Democratic Party first, since talking about David Delighton will probably take a little bit more time. Uh, the Democratic Party, of course, has taken a really hardline pro-abortion stance. So how, how is it that you would square being a Democrat while also being pro-life?
2: Well, first of all, I don't vote for pro-choice Democrats. So although I d- identify as a Democrat, I'm not voting for pro-choice Democrats, so i got to get that out of the way right away, because no matter what, if I say I'm a Democrat, people always accuse me of voting for pro-choice Democrats. I'm not doing that. I right, have right. done that in the past, regrettably, but I no longer think that's the best option, and I don't do that. Um Sorry, what was your question again, Clinton?
0: Oh, that's okay. Just uh, how do you square being a Democrat with being pro-life, considering that the Democrat Party has taken such a hardline pro-abortion stance?
2: So there is a distinction between the Democratic Party and the people that they represent. Uh, The Democratic Party has gone very, very extreme in their position supporting late-term abortion and their complete failure um, to address the problem of infanticide in this country. Um, But that is not representative of the majority of Democrats. In fact, even a 2019 Marist poll shows that 60% of Democrats want abortion restricted to the first three months of pregnancy. So you have to ask yourself, where is the representation? We have this constant idea that, you know, Democrats just want to kill babies and they're just so pro-choice, but that's not what the data shows us. It just shows us that there's a complete lack of representation in our party um, for any kind of um, more moderate position on abortion. And I I want to uh, find a way to draw attention to that and to, Put the pressure on these lawmakers and and those who are running um, for president to to consider the opinion of the majority and to start making some institutional change now i think the reason um that we see this happening is because it is the it is evidence of a powerful lobby at play uh it it shows us that you know this is just about the abortion industry paying uh, for these campaigns and there being no other grassroots resistance within the party to actually stand up and demand representation. And the reason that that has happened is because the democratic party and the abortion industry through their work with the democratic party and the media has done everything within their power to silence and stigmatize and shame any person who has even the, lightest pro-life leanings um, from vocalizing that within the party. Um, and we can turn that around by stigmatizing and shaming legislators who would allow for elective third trimester abortion and who refuse to support bills that would create punishments for the doctors who let babies who are born alive die or kill them for medical research. So I think that there is a ton of opportunity in the Democratic Party right now um, to make this happen. And really, at the end of the day, when we're thinking about long-term goals of actually really ending the influence of abortion in America today, we cannot have that conversation without talking about what that means for the Democratic Party, because we must break the relationship. That the democrats have with the abortion industry and that's not going to happen just by getting a bunch of people um to vote republican necessarily or for republicans to try to stigmatize and silence that's not going to work it has to come from within um and and what i'm trying to do is mobilize the effort i'm just trying to call the majority to action so that we can have real representation in our party and end this nightmare of extremism that's happening because of this powerful lobby
0: yeah so obviously since you're working on reform you don't see it as a as a fool's errand but it is obviously quite an uphill battle uh why do you believe you'll actually be able to change uh the party to make it pro-life considering so many of the of the most powerful democrats take this hardline pro-abortion position
2: uh, well, because we do actually have the majority of people power, um, and I think, you know, given enough work uh, trying to develop the resources to um, to bring these people, people like me, people who believe in the consistent values of equality, nonviolence, and non-discrimination, who believe in the other platforms of the Democratic Party, um, we can find a way to bring them forward and the way that we're going to do that is to openly stigmatize and shame the people within our leadership who have been making these decisions people don't feel emboldened to step forward unless they see other people on their side and not just on their side but willing to stand up against the people who are against where they stand and um, and we see that it's been so successful from the pro-choice side, right? I mean, through stigma and shame, right. they have entirely silenced the majority of Democrats. So all we have to do is turn that same tactic on them, put an enormous amount of resources into it, get people to stop leaving the party over abortion and get them to turn around and force change within their own party. It can ha- It's totally going to happen.
0: So one of the important things – About the pro-abortion Democrats that are kind of the the most powerful frontrunners for the presidency uh, is that they all take a hardline pro-abortion stance, but they're actually out of step with the majority of people in America. You know, the majority of the people aren't necessarily pro life Yeah, they're not necessarily pro-life, the majority of Americans, but they at least do not believe that abortion should be legal for all nine months of pregnancy. So how is it you feel these pro-abortion people have been able to obtain a position of power in the party, considering that they're out of lockstep with most of the people in the Democratic Party?
2: We failed back in the '90s as Democrats to mobilize and to fundraise and to do the work that needed to be done to crush that effort then. And I think we just kind of didn't recognize that in the '90s that this how it was going to play out that that Democrats were going to not just be, you know safe, legal, and rare, but that we were going to go all the way to infanticide. Um, hmm. We we should have crushed it a long time ago, but they were able to build momentum through that and. The the partisanship of the issue now, because it's so strongly taken up by Republicans, it naturally becomes something that Democrats want to fight against. And so they can capitalize on that, on that duality, and just kind of play into the hand that they've been playing this whole time without any opposition within the party. Well, there's been some, but not, not the kind of significant effort that would be necessary to, to raise up a, a majority, at least up until this point. Uh, so I think you know there's there's been a lot of failures and it's not you know it's hard to know how things are gonna go but we in retrospect um, America allowed this to happen by not by by allowing themselves to be silenced and shamed into not saying anything about thinking that late term elective abortion is probably wrong.
1: Teresa, you recently attended the Democratic primary debates, and I know you're actually planning on attending the one in Los Angeles with some other pro-lifers in California. Uh, yep. How have the conversations been at those events? Are left-leaning uh, people at those events pretty receptive to hearing from you guys?
2: Definitely. We have converted tons of people on the ground. We have connected with um, three major campaigns, um, We have um, we got our question asked at the last debate. Our pro-life Dems welcome into the party, and Elizabeth Warren shamefully deflected. Um, We've gotten a ton of press. There's a lot of interest in it, and I. It's one of the most valuable things um, Democrats for Life has done um, in quite some time, and we are definitely able to convert people on the ground. When they see that 22-week fetal model and we tell them that their candidates support elective abortion at that age, they are appalled, and they are willing to have that conversation with their uh, campaigns.
1: That's great. What arguments or what points have you found to be the most persuasive with people at those events?
2: Um, focus on late term abortion and infanticide, um, talking about fetal tissue research and how that works and how there's a, up to a 50% chance of born alive infants from medically induced abortions without digoxin. Like that's a fact from the pro-choice organization, um, the society of family planning. And so that's a real stat. 50 per up to 50% are born alive. So, And then you show them a fetal model at that gestational age and you tell them, you know, at 22 weeks, this fetus is very likely um, viable. Like when we're talking about elective abortion on viable fetuses, there's not an argument really for that. So no one is willing to support it. I haven't met anybody on the ground other than boomers who just don't want to talk about it. If they're millennial and they want to talk about it, they are changed. They 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 don't realize, first of all, that their candidates do support um, abortion up until birth for elective reasons, until we point it out to them. But when we do, I mean, just that fact alone is shocking to people. I, I think also the fact that abortion is the number one cause of death in America. I think most people think that there's just maybe a few hundred or something abortions that happen every year. In America, There are almost a million abortions every year in this country, and we say heart disease and heart disease-related deaths is the number one killer, you know, other than abortion, but that takes about up to 600,000 lives a year. So we're talking about 400,000 more deaths per year than heart disease? That's an emergency. That's a big problem. It's not just like a rare situation. I think that's where... Um, a lot of people are just totally uninformed, and once they know, they are, they're changed. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, thank you for asking.
0: Okay, so let's go ahead and, and transition into the recent court cases with the Center for Medical Progress. Why don't you start off by just kind of telling us a little bit about who David Delighton and Sandra Merritt are and what the Center for Medical Progress is.
2: Sure. So back in 2015, there were a series of videos released showing Planned Parenthood executives and other executives from fetal tissue um, harvesting companies discussing the sale of fetal body parts. And um, this was explosive news back in 2015, and these videos were put out by an organization called the Center for Medical Progress, and we found out right after um, that the lead, David Daleiden, he he was the project lead, he had gone undercover for years developing this project, um, posing as um, a procurement technician with a um, biotech company that he set up called Biomax uh, to gain access. Uh, and he did. He gained unprecedented access into the Na- National Abortion Federation conferences, to Planned Parenthood conferences, um, into Planned Parenthood clinics. Um, he did actual clinic tours with some of the uh, procurement techs. Um, so he was able to get Hundreds of hours of footage of some of the most horrific conversations happening within the abortion industry when they think no one is looking. Now, after these videos were released, um, the news was explosive, and Planned Parenthood issued an apology for the the tone of one of the doctors, Dr. Patola, um, and and there was a an eight million dollar PR campaign to start the hashtag hashtag stand with pp so if you're familiar with that hashtag that hashtag did not exist before uh, the work for the center for medical progress now the work that they did was um has been validated by um the fifth circuit and um and a judge in san francisco like there's no dispute about the fact that what is on the videos is accurate and that is what the doctors have said but Planned Parenthood's talking point the entire time has been these e- videos are highly edited, heavily edited, fake videos. And so it's really put a damper on being able to get these videos in the hands of younger people because they have this impression that they're somehow faked or not real. And that is because you know Planned Parenthood is paid for those talking points. But we know uh, from court documents and from the, the full footage that, that these videos are accurate. Now, in response to these videos, um, there were two congressional um, investigations done, and the last one referred um, several Planned Parenthood affiliates and fetal tissue procurement companies uh, for that uh, investigation by the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice took up the investigation, and they have, as far as we know, our have, have either completed it or are still doing it, but we don't have any information about the findings of that investigation yet. So that is pending. We're waiting for that any day now. But in the meantime, Planned Parenthood has taken very serious steps to silence the work of David Delayden um, and Sandra Merritt, who worked with him also at the center for medical progress and several other defendants. And they have, um, they have sued David uh, in federal court there is a an injunction on several more of the videos that have not been released that david cannot even bring to the authorities because they are sealed by this judge and this particular judge is is biased he has uh, ongoing legal duties to planned parenthood because he helped open one of the same affiliate that's suing david when he was on the board of the good samaritan family resource center here in san francisco so major conflict of interest And in that case, uh, a jury awarded Planned Parenthood $2.2 million in damages um, ordered to be paid by the Center for Medical Progress, Biomax, and, and all those associated with CMP. It is absolutely outrageous because they awarded much of that in punitive damages, which is punitive damages are reserved exclusively for only the most heinous and despicable crimes so it is just absolutely unreal that after six weeks of testimony the jury turns back not just everything Planned Parenthood asked for but more so it's very very it, it was a devastating ruling that we're still uh, reeling from and there will be a ton of opportunity for appeal and i absolutely believe that we will be victorious in the end david was not even allowed a first amendment defense Uh, the judge Mm -hmm. made sure that it it, the odds were absolutely stacked again but in addition to this uh, to the civil uh, suit planned parenthood met secretly with kamala harris uh, right after the videos came out when she was ag of california And they had a a secret meeting uh, that came out in discovery proceedings and then had uh, police raid David's home and take all of his stuff uh, illegally. And now they are using that information that they illegally took from his apartment to sue, uh, to press criminal charges against him and Sandra Merritt uh, for quote-unquote illegal illegally recording now they didn't break any laws they did they recorded only in public areas um, and they consulted with legal teams before making these decisions they even talked to police about some of the decisions that they were making beforehand to make sure that they were you know within the law which they were but guess what it doesn't matter um, if the state AG wants to come after you and press criminal charges, well, apparently that's what's going to happen. And we found out now we have a new AG, uh, Javier Becerra, um, who um, has continued these charges against David and Sandra. And that case is going to a jury trial. Um, the arraignment is on January 30th here in San Francisco. So it, it is going to be a long battle. Um, unless something remarkable happens from the DOJ. If the DOJ comes down with indictments for Planned Parenthood on all of this, that's going to change the outcome of all of this. Um, but until then, you know, this is, this is uh, the biggest fight for the pro-life movement right now we're talking about the most extreme aspects of the abortion industry, things that even the most ardently pro-choice person is likely going to have a moral problem with. These things must be exposed and the pro-life movement must stand behind David and Sandra the entire time. We cannot give up. We cannot, yes, it's complicated. Yes, it can be difficult to follow. And yes, this is probably going to go on for many more years, but we have to care every step of the way because This is an attempt by the abortion industry to silence pro-life activism forever, and that cannot happen. I need everyone who's listening to this podcast to find some way to be an activist, to take up this type of work. Maybe it's undercover investigative journalism. Maybe it's nonviolent direct action. Maybe it's open rescue, but do something because we cannot let them even believe for a minute that they are going to send this message to us and that it's going to be received.
1: You know, I first met David back in uh, 2017 actually. I, I got to meet him at a uh, of life family Services at HALA in San Diego. It was really great getting to meet him, getting to uh, meet a uh, modern day hero. Yeah. Tracking the whole thing, I remember when I first heard about the videos, I was shocked. Actually, I didn't even believe it myself and I'd been pro-life for a pretty good part of my adult life and I didn't even believe it until I started looking into it.
0: I just had a kind of a follow-up question to what uh, Teresa was just talking about uh, regarding the police coming in and illegally seizing the equipment from David Delighton, Why is it that the judge would admit that evidence in the court, considering that it was illegally procured?
2: Um, well, that is an excellent question, but one that we don't have answers to. It'll
1: probably come up during the trial process.
2: Oh, it's already come up. It came up in the preliminary hearing. We even had the, the guy, the, uh, I can't remember his title but he actually did the raid and so all of this has been highly questioned but it's just it's been allowed to move forward I i really can't put some reasoning behind that other than I think there's probably a ton of pressure on the judge to to handle things in a certain way and I don't it we have a motion I, I believe the motion to have the, to have the evidence um, – to have the case thrown out because the evidence was illegally seized was uh, denied. So I, I, there really isn't a clear reasoning for that.
0: And so the judge himself has ties with Planned Parenthood too, doesn't he?
2: Not in the criminal case. Um, we're – The judge in the criminal case um, actually seems to be quite fair, and and he seems to – it's hard to get around my own bias on the topic, but it would be very difficult for me to believe that he's not been seriously changed um, by some of – the testimony that he's heard in the preliminary hearing that the witnesses, several of the witnesses have already testified in the preliminary hearing. Um, and, and he did throw out several of the counts. So we went from uh, 14 charges to um, no nine um, total. So um, it's uh, he seems like he's trying to be fair. It seems very, Clear that he understands the importance of David's First Amendment rights, and he has stood up for them against the AG's office on several occasions, especially in the in the last hearing uh, when he handed down his ruling. And he, the AG's office is asking to redact the video footage and lots of uh, testimony from the uh, the trial. And the judge is like, "There's no way you can expect this to be considered a public trial." If you're expecting me to redact this information, that's trampling on his First Amendment rights. So it, it does—he's being very cautious about that. But at the end of the day, he's not going to bring Kamala Harris into his courtroom to testify, and he's not—he wants a career in as a judge in this city and in this state. So he's very cautiously moving forward.
0: Yeah. One. When- Very common criticism I've heard of the videos, and you you mentioned this when you were talking about uh, CMP also, is that the videos are, quote, heavily edited, end quote, and what people usually mean by that is not – heavily edited because obviously anytime you put something out like a video or recording of some sort it's heavily edited because that's just the nature of releasing things but what they mean by heavily edited is actually that it's been deceptively edited to paint planned parenthood in a a bad light and so what do you say then when someone makes that accusation about the videos
2: um well i mean you can try to show them the physical Circuit ruling. You can show them transcripts from the um, the civil trial where the, the judge says to the jury, these are agreed upon facts that everything said in the videos is the words of the people themselves. That you know all of the footage has been released to the public, and like there, it's very clear that there's no there's nothing untrue um, in the videos, and yeah I mean Planned Parenthood wouldn't won't even uh, sue him for defamation because they can't they are only concerned about the words of the people that worked for them um, so it's a it's a tough thing to get over it's like when you say what do you say to people when they say this it, it's People, if they're already thinking that they're heavily edited, it is very, very difficult to get them to consider another point of view. But if they are actually willing to consider, then those are the pieces of evidence I would show them. Like I said, the Fifth Circuit ruling, transcripts and testimony from court documents, um, and the the factual reality that they released the entirety of all of the footage.
0: Then obviously it's going to continue to to fight the rulings that have been brought down but what what's in the future for for david
2: well the, he's going to be arraigned on the 30th um in his criminal case and he and sandra are both facing prison time uh this is real this is a criminal trial um so that's that's very scary for me as an activist we've been working on um supporting david for years and and he is ever positive david believes you know that everything happens for a reason and he is a He's the most faithful person that I know. Uh, I'm probably the least faithful person I know. So I'm much more uh, worried about the situation and and what the future holds. But I know that ultimately we will win. Like Joe Scheidler, you know, he fought his case for like 25 years or something, but he won. David will win. David didn't do anything illegal. He did exactly what citizen journalists do in this country every single day and nothing different, and, um, and he will be vindicated. It's just going to take time and a lot of work on all of our parts to continue to keep this visible.
0: So then what can pro-life people do to support David as he moves forward in these uh, criminal proceedings?
2: Keep talking about it, sharing the videos, putting pressure on your legislators saying, you know, when are we going to get an answer from the DOJ? Um, Putting pressure on everybody in your community about um, getting to the bottom of this, like just keeping it on people's radar, doing activism, going undercover. Um, There are so, so many things that can be done, um, but it's got to go beyond listening to a podcast, guys.
1: Well, to our listeners, you've heard it. <laughs> so speaking of uh, keeping things visible, I also know that you've been doing a lot of work to expose the reality of abortion and focusing on the training that is done in academia. It's becoming more and more, I guess, surveillance uh, medical training that future abortion providers are getting. I know vice news, they released an article a while back about doing abortions on papayas. And it was, it was a really bizarre article, but, uh, I know you've been trying to expose a lot of the training that's been going on, like, I believe it's UCLA Medical School. How did you come across that, and how have you gone about exposing that?
2: Well, I it got on my radar because of David's work um, and seeing uh, these doctors talking on camera about how um, they're performing these late term abortions for um, organ harvesting. And um, we know that UCSF is. Uh, the University of California, San Francisco is the late-term abortion training capital of the U.S. Their Ryan Residency Training Program um, is the top-rated abortion training program in the country. Almost all of the PPFA doctors and, and any like well-known abortion doctors in this country pretty much go through the Ryan Residency. It's been funded by Warren Buffett since the 1960s. And then I also found out that UCSF is engaged in several um, high visibility um, NIH funded uh, fetal tissue research projects. Um, So once I started looking into that, I realized this is huge. I mean, this is, they're literally, UCSF is the most politically motivated medical institution on this issue globally. They are pushing abortion all over the globe, they're training people to do these late-term abortions, and they're doing them for medical research. And the the re- I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I think that's a good thing, right? Like, we if there are going to be abortions, we want at least something good to come out of that. But the reality is that, like, for example, I, an NIH-funded contract that was just canceled by the Trump administration between UCSF um, and the NIH required the UC to obtain two healthy, pristine fetuses between the ages of eighteen and twenty four weeks per month, meaning that most many of them were viable. And this has been going on for about the last twelve years. And so we're we're talking about late term fetuses that can you cannot use digoxin, which is the feticide that causes um, fetal demise prior to an abortion, because when you're doing a late term abortion, it's much more difficult if the baby is alive and fighting back. Um, so if you do the, the digoxin beforehand, it causes the fetal heart to stop and the baby dies. The abortion is much easier that way. And then they don't risk, you know, born alive. Infants, but in medical research they cannot use digoxin because it ruins the tissue quality um, for medical experimentation. So they can only do these. And according to UCSF's website, they do late-term abortions two ways. One is a dismemberment procedure. So in this case, it would be a fully live dismemberment on viable fetuses, or a medically a medical induction, which according to the Society of Family Planning. A medically-induced abortion without the use of dedoxin produces born-alive infants up to 50% of the time. And then I found out that these doctors at UCSF that are doing these abortions, uh, one of them includes Dr. Daniel Grossman, who, first of all, pretends to be a, fa- a fact-checker for Facebook. He apparently, quote-unquote, fact-checks live-actions material. Um, he has fought... For SB 24, which is the uh, the California bill that now will force every college university to supply abortion-inducing drugs on campus, he's like super involved politically, um, and he advocates for the care of pre- uh, prematurely born infants in the, the NICU, and and then he's surrounded by these other doctors, who've been Dr. Eleanor Dry, um, Dr. Monica McElmore. These doctors have all worked together for, like, close to 20 years, some of them, and including the chancellor, Sam Hoggood. So they have just been surrounded by yes men for years without any opposition. They're in San Francisco. They feel like they absolutely have nothing to worry about. Um, so it's, it's really, really remarkable just the level of um, horror that is happening right here in my own backyard. So what we've been doing is we we started a campaign against UCSF. we call we say call UCSF an American horror story. We um, have gone to speak to the the UC regents, which includes All of the high-ranking positions in California, like the governor, Gavin Newsom, the lieutenant governor, um, and several other people in the state legislature, as well as uh, other appointees. So we're talking about some of the most powerful people in the country um, sitting on the Board of Regents, and they do have to take public comments. So once a quarter when they meet, I go and I give a a passionate speech telling them who I am and, and asking them why the hell they even bother to have an ethics committee. If live dismemberment and a 50% chance of born alive infant meets the threshold of acceptability, so we're, we we protest against them. We're doing social media um, to to target uh, their practices in the community and just kind of create this um, this uprising against them and give them the resistance that they haven't gotten and. The reality is, like, the entire country needs to be looking at this because the Ryan Residency is how we train abortion doctors in this country. And if we ignore um, San Francisco and think, oh, well, you know, that's just, it's too hard there. There's just too many pro choicers. Like, we're miss, we're, it's like, this is the Atlanta of the Civil War, guys. If we don't fight the fight here, if we're afraid to fight it here, then we might as well give up. We can't fight it all around and ever expect to win. We must go where the enemy lives, and the enemy lives in San Francisco.
1: Thank you for sharing all that.
2: Thank you for letting me talk for a long time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no worries. We love having you on. Just uh, Since we are kind of running out of time, I just want to ask, just change tasks a little bit. I don't think we've ever discussed this on the podcast. How would you describe? Because you are also pro-life feminist. How would you describe pro-life feminism?
2: You know that's a complicated question, and actually, it's I've kind of gotten away from talking about feminism in general because I think the issue has become overly complicated and divisive, both in pro-life and pro-choice circles. I think that there have emerged since the 2016 election what i would consider two camps of feminism and i don't really fit into either of them so i feel uh, a little conflicted about it but there there's the pro-life feminism camp which i would more call like christian feminism uh, which is in line with how i think the original feminists um, saw feminism they see it Uh, women in particular is having a very specific role in society and things that women are um, can contribute because of their role as women um, in society and um, and it's I I would say you know transgender exclusive um, and and very much based on like these gender um, roles And, and and then like a more modern or pro-choice um, feminism really doesn't necessarily see women as having a particular role in society, um, but just equality in general, and and don't see gender in the same way. They see it more, uh, you know, gender fluid, or you know that they're more transgender inclusive, um, and don't see feminism in kind of that same light. So I think when I say, oh, I'm a pro-life feminist, you know, maybe five years ago people would be like, oh, whoa, that's interesting. But I think now they just think, oh, that just means that you are a Christian and you probably are, you know, have issues with or don't support, you know, a transgender culture or, or traditions or, you know, it, it comes with all this other baggage now that I'm just not I don't want to have to get into it most of the time uh, because I much more identify with a transgender inclusive point of view on feminism, but I'm pro-life. Uh, I don't believe in natural law. I don't believe that it's about women having a specific role. Um, but I understand that that's where a lot of people are coming from in the pro-life movement. And that's how they understand feminism and, and their position um, as a pro But it's just not something that I share. And so I, I'm reluctant to kind of identify that way as much anymore just because of those problems.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for sharing
2: that. Sure. But, yes, I do consider myself a feminist because I think at the end of the day, what feminism is about is equality. Um, And that is something I'm definitely for. And so I'm not saying I'm not a feminist. I am. Um, I just don't like when we say pro-life feminist. I feel like it, it
1: comes with other things that I'm not. Well, thank you for sharing your views on that, and that that was pretty informative.
2: Thanks.
0: Okay, well, uh, we're actually coming up uh, to the end of our time together here. Uh, did you have anything regarding anything we've talked about here today that you might want to add before we close?
2: Mm, I no, I can't think of anything. Sorry, guys.
0: <laughs> oh no, that's fine. Yeah, we, we appreciate you coming on to talk to us about these things and kind of keeping us in the loop here. Uh, where can yeah, people find? Yeah, thank
2: you find... guys so much for everything you're doing.
0: Oh yeah, you're welcome. Happy to happy to do that. Yeah, it can be it can like you said, it can be a, a hard fight sometimes, but it's an important one. Yep. So where can people find you online?
2: Yes, great question. At T E R R I S A L I N, like Nancy, Teresa Lynn. That's my uh, Instagram and my um, Twitter handle and. You can find me on my Facebook, Teresa Bakovinak and um, and then Pro-Life San Francisco. Follow our handle, at Pro-Life SF. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Same with Secular Pro-Life. Same with Rehumanize International. Same with Democrats for Life. Follow us all.
0: All right. Well, uh, Teresa, thank you again for coming on and uh, sharing your views and allowing us to interview you.
2: My pleasure. Thank you guys so, so much. Happy holidays.
0: Yeah, thank you. You too. You too. Thanks. Okay. Well, if, if you enjoyed the uh, discussion here or you like the the work that we're doing here in this podcast, you can uh, please feel free to share share the podcast interview around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent. You can rate and review us on our Blog Talk Radio page, uh, on our Facebook page, or our uh, even on iTunes. We have our podcast going on. And now uh, this is a – well, more or less, it's it's not exactly a weekly podcast anymore, but we're trying to get it back to at least a semi-regular schedule. But it it does take a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the uh, pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. Uh, Or if you'd like to donate to the podcast specifically, you can indicate that in the notes as well, and we'll um, we'll use that appropriately. Now, a couple of uh, upcoming events, if you happen to be in, in these areas, uh, in January, the, the early January, I'm going to be delivering a breakout session at the DEFEND 2020 conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm going to be there on Wednesday, January 8th, and my breakout session will be at 1230. My topic is going to be how Christians should think about bioethics. It's a week-long conference, so by all means, you should definitely attend every day, but my, uh, my breakout session will specifically be Wednesday the 8th at 1230 there in January. And then uh, near the end of January, I'm going to be at Winthrop University at the Rock Hill Charlotte metro area. On Monday, January 27th at 7 p.m., we're going to be screening the movie Unplanned, and I'm going to be on a Q&A panel with Melissa Pallou of Ratio Christi and a representative of Students for Life. And then the next day, Tuesday the 28th, I haven't confirmed it yet, but I'll likely be doing a, do, uh, giving a pro-life presentation at their Ratio Christi normal meeting also. So those are a couple of uh, events that, that we've got coming up there. And if you enjoy the interviews that we do, we do have a couple of upcoming guests that we have finalized coming on the show. We have uh, Steve Jacobs joining us next Monday at the same time as our interview today, 2 o'clock p.m. He was the person who published the report showing that 96% of biologists agree that life begins at fertilization. We're going to have him on to talk about his research and the reactions that he's received from people in the uh, biology community as well as others. And then on January 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific, we're going to bring on Stephen Napier, who's a very, very smart pro-life philosopher. He uh, recently published a book earlier this year, and I'm bringing him on to talk about an argument that he presents in that book called The Moral Risk Argument Against Abortion. So those are just some of the things we have coming up. Hope to see you there if you want to come to our upcoming events, or you know, we'll hope that you listen in to our upcoming uh, interviews as well. And now I have a special treat. Uh, My friend, Jason Wisdom, former bassist and lead vocalist for Becoming the Archetype, has a new music project called Death Therapy. Their second album, Voices, was released in April. Uh, Jason gave me permission to play a track from that album to close out our show. Death Therapy is a pretty heavy band, but this is a bit of a lighter track inspired by the Mega Man series of video games. This piece is called The Instability of Proto Man. I'll include a link where you can buy Death Therapy's music in the show notes section, as well as some of the other things we've referenced in the show, uh, in case you like what you hear. With that, thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.